0: launch and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Growing up as an army brat, what was the first brand you remember making an impact on you?
1: The first brand I'd have to say is iZod. So uh, we lived in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Um, this was the let's call it late '70s, and uh, it was in the days of the preppy handbook. My oldest brother, Brody, uh, was about seven years older than me. You could maybe call him my idol. He uh, he was a sharp dresser with a pair of Levi's jeans and an Izod shirt, and I I wanted that shirt with the alligator on it bad. He was my first sort of social media influencer.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is John Galloway, the chief marketing and innovation officer at Godiva the 95-year-old chocolate brand created by the Draps family in Brussels, Belgium. First product? Pralines, of course. Today, Godiva is a large global brand with sales in more than 100 countries. It is owned by the Turkish food conglomerate Yildiz Holding, a multi-billion dollar company based in Istanbul. The Godiva brand's world headquarters, however, is in New York City. John Galloway's marketing career is about as diverse as it gets. He entered the West Point Military Academy out of high school, then transferred to Manhattan College. He began his marketing career at public relations firm Burson Marsteller, which began a journey to work on brands such as Miller Beer, the NFL, NASCAR, MLB, Mountain Dew, Pepsi, Gatorade, Hard Rock Cafe, and I probably missed a few. This is John's third CMO role after stints at Gatorade and Hard Rock International. He is also on the board of directors at World of Beer Franchising. This is my conversation with John Galloway. Welcome to the CMO Podcast, John. You spend your time on chocolate and beer, so I would imagine you must be invited to a lot of parties.
1: Wow. Pre-COVID, I was a little (laughs) bit the life of the party, and uh, I I would say that that's true, but uh, getting me to a party, you certainly have to worry about what you might have in your household. So I'm very likely to go through your cupboards and your refrigerator still to this day. And to this day, I'm walking in that cupboard and I'm looking for Miller products. I'm still a Miller Lite faithful drinker, Miller Genuine Draft. I'm going in there and looking for PepsiCo products, which there's a super long list. Um, And then obviously Godiva chocolate. And if you have anything other than that or associated with anything other than that, the party doesn't really get off to a great start.
0: Well, this is a bit easier than if you work for P and G because you're crawling around bathrooms and garages and laundry rooms. That's a little bit more down and dirty.
1: That's that's true. That's true. You know, in in the end, at at PepsiCo, we certainly had the days. Um, the, about as far as we had to go is to the cupboard to see if you had Captain Crunch and Life cereal, and that was you know between PepsiCo people uh, eventually a bone of contention when we said to the people in Chicago at you know, Gatorade, hey, we don't want to see uh, Gatorade, uh, Pepsi competing products around with you all. And they said, well, do you have anything other than Life Cereal or Captain Crunch in your fridge? And we got into some good nature debates about that. Brand loyalty.
0: Passion for the brands. That's, that's what it's all about. So are you more of a chocolate person or a beer person?
1: I am more of a chocolate person today, to be honest with you. I'm a, a little bit of a hack runner. And that dark chocolate helps me. It was a habit I started uh, way before Godiva. And so every day, dark chocolate was in my diet before I came up here to New York to work on this business. Um, It's actually something that can be quite good for you. Um, So uh, dark chocolate is my thing. Still an occasional beer.
0: You've had an incredibly diverse career in marketing and much more diverse than most of our guests we've had on the podcast. But I want to go back to where that might have started. You were at West Point, and an astute officer pulled you aside one day and said something to you that changed your path forward. Could you tell us that story?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, I was at West Point. I, I grew up actually at the academy. My dad happened to be a professor at West Point, and so I had a you know first person view of what went on there. Um, I grew up as a military brat. The campus is phenomenal; great place to grow up. And I decided, hey, I enjoyed my uh, my high school days here. Why don't I just continue and go to the military academy? Um, I, I had the the great great honor of entering into the military academy um, and following in the footsteps of my dad and both of my grandfathers. But when I got there, I realized maybe it just wasn't for me. Um, I think the Academy agreed. Uh, Maybe it was one day in formation, pink socks, one day in formation. I put a little flower in top of my M16, and I had a polite officer pull me aside one day and said, Galloway, I like you, but I think you're a little bit too much of a poet to be at West Point. And I took that as a sincere compliment. And uh, it's something that sticks to me to this day. You know, the the leadership, that experience at West Point, you know, certainly keeps in my mind and and is a part of who I am. But the poet is also a part of who I am today.
0: You still went two years to West Point, right? I did
1: do that. So I actually went for uh, a year at the prep school at Fort Monmouth, uh, the U.S. Military Academy prep school. And then I actually spent a year and a half at West Point. Um, so I went my freshman year, your plebe year, which is the most awesome experience, you know, getting as low as you can as a human being. Um, and then during my sophomore year, uh, made the out and uh, moved on to Manhattan College in the Bronx, New York, and thought I was going to be a uh, sports broadcaster or a sports journalist at that time. And I set down that road. But, you know, different things happened in the career and it didn't play out that way um, to this day, I'm a, I'm a big Army fan. Obviously, it's it's still a part of my DNA, but it just wasn't for me.
0: I wanted to be a sports broadcaster or sports writer, also in college.
1: Well, it's 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 funny. I I my first job out of school, I, I worked for a company called Burst and Marsteller, and part of the Young and Rubicam family. And ironically, I, I worked on the U.S. Army account. So I went in and. They hired me because I knew what the ranks were. I could talk the talk. And I went in and recorded a video for our client. And we created this video news release of soldiers down in Honduras. And it was an amazing video of them in progress. I did the voiceover. We went and debuted it to our client and we shared it with them. And They said, we love this video. We love everything about it. The edits, the pacing, the music. But that voiceover is horrible. <laughs> and thus ended my uh, belief that I could ever be a broadcaster of any sort. My, my voice didn't play out on, uh, on video. I hope it plays out okay today.
0: I think you sound pretty good, John. Hey, what, what, uh, that's those first jobs out of college are so important. And you, you went to work as an account exec for the Army, which is funny and, and ironic. What, uh, what about that time at West Point? Helped you be—I I would assume—a pretty good account exec at Burston for the Army.
1: Well, I mean, I, I would say at West Point, you woke up at six o'clock in the morning, and at six twenty, you were down in formation. And by six twenty, you had to be in formation, be able to describe what was for breakfast, what was on the front page of the New York Times, and how many days till the Army Navy game, and then have breakfast, go off to class all day. Be up, you know, quite a bit at night doing your homework and ready to go the next day. So actually, Burston Marsteller was pretty easy comparatively. You went in there and I was like, wow, I don't have to start till nine o'clock. And, uh, you know, I could be here and out some days at five, some days at seven. The, the days were a lot shorter. Um, the freedom was a lot greater.
0: What attracted you to Burson coming out of Manhattan College?
1: So I actually went and worked for a small public relations firm called G.S. Schwartz in Manhattan during my time um, in in college. And, you know, ironically there, I worked there my uh, junior year. I worked there during the summer between my junior and senior year. And that was where I thought I was going to work actually for the rest of my life. You know, growing up in a military family, and my dad had a long, long career. And I thought I was going to work at GS Schwartz forever. And three weeks into the job, in June of whatever could have been 1989, we lost the Burger King business, and I was laid off. And here I was, first you know, job ever, three weeks in, and I lost it, and it was devastating. And I and I thought, boy, my my life is going nowhere. Uh, Had a friend who had left G.S. Schwartz and went on to Burson Marsteller, which in size and scope and clients was significantly greater than G.S. Schwartz. Um, And I landed a a job and and a role there, and uh, that led to a a career very, very nicely. So all these little stepping stepping stones, you know, certainly uh, I didn't necessarily lay them out in front of me, um, but making a few uh, choices along the way certainly helped.
0: Well, you eventually left Burston and joined Wonderman, which is another great marketing services company. And you you started to work for Miller, from what I understand. And it was pretty tough work. I mean, you were in a van, you were doing activations, you were traveling throughout the Northeast. And I've heard you say that you learned more in that role than anything else you have ever done. So I'd like you to tell us why that experience was so rich. In development for you as a young guy at that point, what were you 24 25 24, something like that yeah yeah
1: so so there were probably two parts to it. Um, the first was my my client, um, so I was on the agency side, I moved up to Boston, Massachusetts, and my client say she was 30 years old, um, a, a young lady named Pat Ekeden, and Pat was uh, the first brand person I had ever met. And one day we're with Pat and we were sponsoring the the Newport uh, Miller Light College uh, Tennis Hall of Fame. And we got taken out on somebody's yacht to go out and, you know, in Newport and have a great time. And we went and stopped and we picked up a few beers on the on the yacht. They happened to be Coors Light, not Miller. They brought the Coors Light back on the boat. And Pat said, take us off the boat. We want off. And I was mortified that she would do that. I can't, it was almost embarrassing to me. And we got back on the shore and Pat explained to me loyalty and what Miller versus Coors really meant. And from that day on, you know, it just got into my blood that again, this brand thing was serious. And when a brand has an enemy, it's serious. Um, so, you know, that started at Miller and certainly we can talk about the Pepsi days, but it went to the next level. The other interesting part about my, my time at, at Miller was literally, yes, I was given this Miller Genuine Draft Conversion van, a, a 1970s van you can imagine with hats and t-shirts. And my job was literally calling up a distributor four weeks in advance of a sporting event and talking to them about how we were going to take advantage of that NASCAR race going into the market or a Pro Beach volleyball event going into the market. What did success look like for them? I had tickets, I had merchandise, I had hospitality, and we would create, among other things, radio station promotions, in-store display promotions, incentives for the distributorship. Um, And, you know, in a sense, I was a man with a van doing every single thing. I went into the market four days early and built displays. So they saw me as a human resource, as, you know, arms and legs, built displays, hung banners met with the retailers, went and merchandised those accounts. At night, I would pick up our ambassadors from Miller, bring them to the bars, and we would do promotions at night. On Friday, we would have a celebrity come into town, whether it was a driver, Rusty Wallace in NASCAR, or a pro beach volleyball player, or a sharps golfer. I'd pick them up at the airport, clean up my van, bring them to radio stations and do live interviews with them. And then Saturday, Sunday, hospitality would start at the track or the event. Saturday night, we'd be out quite a bit at night, back up Sunday morning and you know, do it all over again. So I, I touched you know, the media side of it. I touched the celebrity side of it. I touched the hospitality side of it. Um, and I was a man in a van and I was on to the next location. And so it was tiresome work. But you, you saw the importance of every single piece of the marketing mix. And, you know, ultimately, funny story is, you know, when Rusty Wallace wins the race on the first Sunday, I'm there. We went and Tom Roberts, his old PR guy said, we're going to collect Rusty's tires. We collected Rusty's tires and we brought them back to the accounts on Monday morning and built displays that Rusty had signed the tires with the winning tire from the races. And again, full circle to it. So uh, it was extremely hard work. It taught me, you know, hard work, hard play, brand loyalty. And, you know, that, that, that certainly has, has stayed with me through my career.
0: What a great job for a 24-year-old guy, though. I mean, wow.
1: It was amazing. Um, there was, you know, some, some challenges in the job. And, and certainly, uh, you, were, you were out late at night. Um, You'd meet a lot of interesting characters and people. Eventually, I re-met my wife. I had met my wife at Manhattan College uh, in the Bronx. Didn't really work out when I was at Manhattan College in the Bronx. Um, But five years later, I was up running Miller Light College Ski Fest. So I was the godfather of Miller Light College Ski Fest, which basically was Killington, Vermont. Get up in the morning, merchandise the bars, go out skiing. And after we're finished skiing, go back and do bar events there. Um, I ran into my wife during that experience and uh, we got pretty close pretty quickly. Um, And at that point I decided, you know, for me hanging out in the bars all night long probably wasn't the route that was going to work best for our relationship. And so we, uh, we made a strategic pivot.
0: Wow. So if, if not for that job at Miller doing that field work, you would not, be married likely, to who you're married to:
1: I think my wife would say that it was predestined somehow. Mm. She claims yeah. she claims she saw me on the ski slope, she claims, um, but ironically, if you've ever been up to Killington, Vermont, there are, you know, parking lot after parking lot after parking lot. she happened to be parked two cars away from me. And when we went back to the parking lot, I see her get out of the car and she screams over, "John Galloway." And I said, Denise Giordano, and it all started there.
0: That's a sweet story. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You went on from that job to a variety of roles on the agency side, the client side, a lot of time at Pepsi. So I'd just like you to reflect on that time. And before we talk about your role at Godiva, talk about one or two of those experiences that has been most significant in terms of learning for you as a leader, a marketing person, a human being. Sure.
1: There, there are many. I mean, I spent 14 years at, at, at Pepsi. Um, that was a real special time. And I met some amazing leaders, which, which maybe I'll, I'll come back to, to speak about there. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the most significant times was at, was at Hard Rock. And, and at Hard Rock, I went into the organization as a chief marketing officer. I went into an organization that was an organization with a deep culture a deep story, uh, literally a culture where people had hard rock tattoos on. I mean, it meant that much to them. And here is some guy coming in from Gatorade, um, coming in to be their chief marketing officer who had not been a part of that very deep culture, a a culture that started in 1971 by Isaac Tigrett and Peter Morton. And so it, it was a challenge. I started at Hard Rock, and they put me through what they claimed um, was a a military onboarding, which I'd never had in the military, but neither here nor there, um, where my first day on the job, I stood in front of my whole organization, and they had all fed questions in. So they were allowed to do anonymous questions, and I had to stand up in front of the room and answer anonymous questions. And the questions included things along the line of, would I win rock and roll trivia on Jeopardy? Uh, do I curse? And am I okay with cursing? Um, what's my stance on drinking? Um, and it was, a, it, was a really, it was a really challenging in, environment in, in a way, um, because they wanted to see, again, what, what my character was about, how, how my stripes were. Um, and I went through all that. I, I later found out that my mail from Chicago had been going to the office in advance. My wife is slightly on the religious end, so my new assistant was getting all this mail from my wife with all this religious mail. And the rumor was at Hard Rock that I was definitely a very very religious individual, and uh, you know that that team was nervous about it. Um, What I'd say at, at Hard Rock was it, it took probably a year for me to feel like I was part of that family, um, a year for me to feel like I was accepted into the organization. Um, seven years later, the experience at Hard Rock really ended with one of the two founders, Isaac Tigret, at my house um, at a leaving due for my boss, Hamish Dodds, who was the CEO for me for eight straight years. So uh, it really came full circle for me, you know, eight years later, having one of the founders in my house, saying goodbye to uh, our CEO, and having over 100 people pack into our house. We played a a little band together, me and four other friends from hard rock, a tribute song to uh, to Hamish. And uh, it was really special. But It it took a while to to get through and really impress upon that that team that I could be a part of that culture and a real contributor to it.
0: What was the turning point, John? When did you feel like you had their trust and you had their confidence?
1: My boss, Hamish, gave me some really good advice. Um, And, you know, he essentially said for the first 60 days, don't make any proclamations. I want you to really, really listen hard. And he had this crazy meeting cadence with me where every day at five o'clock, I'd swing by his office and he'd ask me, how's it going? What are you learning today? Any challenges, any observations? So he, he was such a mentor and a counselor to me. And he was my sounding board for any frustrations, any observations to, to steer me along the course. And those 60 days really got me off to a great start. There were some individuals in the organization that probably weren't on on board with change to the company, and uh, you know I had to discover that in the first 60 days. I had to make some you know human resource changes in the organization and uh, had great counsel in, in doing so. And so once people saw that you know what I was there for was not to be the rock and roll expert, but to take the brand into the next 10 years forward. Um, they they started to bond when they saw the work ethic, they started to bond when they saw my ability to listen, they started to to bond. Um, and then when they realized that, you know, after six, I was a pretty decent guy too, they started to bond. So I, I think hard rock became as much of a piece of my cultural DNA as any other brand I've played with. And I think when people saw that brand passion and the way I spoke about it, the way I learned the history about it, um, they started to understand that, you know, I could be a part of that family. And, you know, honestly, I think it was fair. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't have any grudge that, you know, people waited a year to say, is this guy ready to be on board with us? Because it's a rich culture, it's an important culture, and, it, and it's why that culture still thrives today.
0: You talked about mentors a few moments ago. Could you highlight one or two who's been especially important for you in this journey?
1: I, I have to say, I've, I've really, really been blessed. Um, my, my 14 years at, at Pepsi, I've met some very, very impressive people. There's, a, there's an individual who will be embarrassed by me using his name, um, but a guy named Dave Berwick. And I, I don't know if you've ever encountered Dave Berwick.
0: I know Dave. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And uh, Dave's a special guy. Dave, actually, I was working for Tracy Locke on site at Pepsi. And working on the Which Mountain Which an New agency, business.
0: What, right? It was an agency of Pepsi's, yeah. And
1: Dave asked me to, to jump over the wall and join the Mountain Dew group. Dave was a is a very humble guy. He's a very engaging guy. Um, and he's a guy who taught me about empowerment. Um, you know, I, I love to tell a story about Dave when I went in to complain to him that, you know, on a personal note, I wasn't getting help from our bottlers on the Mountain Dew Hummer grassroots tour. And uh, our bottlers were unwilling to give me free product. And it was kind of an exchange program. We would pay for the Hummers. We would pay for the ambassadors. The bottlers would pay for the product. Um, They were unwilling to do that for me. And I went in to Dave to complain about it. And Dave just looked at me and he said, John, are you the brand manager on Mountain Dew or are you the CEO of the Mountain Dew grassroots tour? And I, I knew it was a rhetorical question. Um, and I sort of walked out of his office and I got the point and got back on the phone with the bottlers as the CEO of the Mountain Dew Grassroots Tour. Um, he, you know, I, I've stayed very connected with Dave through, throughout my career. And, you know, he's a guy that if I text him right now and say, Dave, I need five minutes, he'll give me what's the most valuable thing anybody can give somebody is time. Um he'll he'll give me that time. I, I know that. he's a he's a wise counsel personally and professionally. Um, and most importantly, he taught me empowerment. And he also taught me about you know fueling agency, oxygen, fueling those relationships. So uh, you know Dave's definitely one that that sits out there for me.
0: I've read a lot of interviews with you in preparation for this podcast, and I'd have to say that, A theme in every one of these interviews, John, has been people and purpose, purpose and people, people and purpose over and over and over again. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about where did that start? You know, It's almost an approach you have to business and life. Where did that start and what lessons can we learn from you and how you bring that, if you will, that philosophy or that approach to life in your daily work?
1: I think it's easy to to say it starts with my my military background um the the idea of trying to live up to two grandfathers who were in the military a dad who was in the military all with with pretty cool careers in the military and so their jobs were all about leading people and leading people in much more challenging situations than than I have on a on a daily basis, and so if I wasn't able to you know fulfill that career in the in the military in, in leading people, certainly I think for me that the bar was to show in my career I could lead people. I I also you know saw people quite honestly like a Dave and forming a, a group of people who followed him, who he supported and, and helped, and said. If I can be sort of half the leader as as he is in my career, that that would be amazing. And if I can have one or two people say in their career that you know they learned from me, they you know crafted some things in their life from me, and it and it made their career more successful, then that would be that would be enough for me um, to go on. And and so I I look at you know what I try to be is is definitely somebody who empowers people. Um, and, I, and I couldn't overuse that word enough. Um, I think I, I try to be somebody who breathes oxygen into situations. So, you know, I, I very much take seriously the idea of I get on a phone call with somebody and whether it's a, a tough subject, a fun subject, did that, you know, conversation end better for both me and that person. Um, does it always happen? No, it doesn't always happen. But it's something on my mind. Um, Again, I I try to bring the passion of who I am to the moment. I I definitely try to bring a a sense of humor to it. Maybe some would say too much. Um, But, you know, I I don't take life that seriously in in the end. So, you know, try to bring that approach overall.
0: I recorded a podcast a few weeks ago with Rupen Desai. He lives in Singapore and he's the CMO of Dole, you know, the fruit company. He taught, I don't know if you know him, but you probably should. He talks a lot about oxygen and how he searches for that in people, in situations. He tries to bring oxygen to situations, but he looks for that in a trait, you know, in organizations. And he talked about his first job out of college. He took a, he went with an agency that paid half as much as the accounting firm was paying, but he said they gave me oxygen.
1: Well, I actually listened to that podcast. So I know exactly what you're you're, you're speaking of, um, and and I think you know what we all work very very hard, um, but we have to balance the the hard with being in in a culture that is invigorating, that's exciting, that puts a smile on people's face. Um, my wife would say I am an internal optimist. Um, I definitely. Gosh, I I was raised in a lifestyle as a military brat where uh, maybe I was naive about what was going on in the world, but my dad had a philosophy of everywhere we lived was the best place. Everywhere we lived, he would point out the most amazing things in Vicksburg, Mississippi, or Chapel Hill, North Carolina, or Highland Falls, New York. Um, And he's such an optimistic spirit that for me, that translates into every day. And so uh, I love to start my day at Godiva. I have a little mini speaker on a stand blaring some music. Until people get in, it's going to be a little bit of loud music. And and I'll end my day the same way Um, because we've got one go round here and uh, it should be exciting and you should make it better for others. And uh, that's where my head is at.
0: What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, let's talk about Godiva and your role as chief marketing and innovation officer. And This is obviously one of the most famous brands in the world. You've been there about two and a half years, and your scope is broader than most. You don't find innovation head in the job remit of most CMOs. So I'd like you to talk about what attracted you to this to come over to Godiva. Was it the scope of this role? Was it the famous brand? Was it a leader? What attracted you to the job?
1: So it was, it was multiple things that, that attracted me to the job. For me, I grew up definitely understanding the Godiva brand. I saw it in my household quite a lot. Um, I saw it in my household, certainly uh, from my father to my mother, every Valentine's Day. and Or if somebody was in trouble, there would be a little Godiva there as well. Um, and certainly, I grew up with, uh, with my wife going to the Godiva boutiques. Um, and that was an occasion in, in my family as well. So from a brand perspective, it meant luxury to me. Luxury wasn't a space that I played in. So with respect to all of the CPG products, this was to me a, a different opportunity to get into the luxury space. Um, that was exciting one. The, the second piece to it, as you said, was the innovation remit. Um, one of the things, quite frankly, that was a struggle for me at, at Hard Rock was that while I was responsible for the the marketing piece of it, on the cafe side, the food and beverage was a separate group. So while occasionally we could have input into the menu, that wasn't something under the remit. And Hamish will tell you more than once, I came into him with a proposal to say, I should take over the culinary side of the business. And he never bid on it. So uh, the opportunity to both oversee the product as well as the marketing just made sense. And, and quite honestly, if somebody came to me today and said, we want to pull innovation out of your remit, we want to take product development out of it, it would be hard for me to go forward because, it, because it's so much of what you know inspires our team. It's so much of how we build stories. It's so much of, as I see, the marketing agenda starts with the product you sell, the products you'll develop behind it, and it's actually a, a lot, a lot of fun.
0: How did you get ready for that, John? You came in. You're not a scientist. You're not a uh, what a chocolatier, whatever they call the chefs in, in the chocolate world. Uh, how did you come in? And you were obviously well prepared to lead a marketing group. You sort of you did that at Gatorade. You did that at Hard Rock. But this was a new animal. How did you approach that? How did you get yourself ready? How did you how did you build confidence in your team and competency in yourself?
1: So a lot of reading, a lot of reading about chocolate, a lot of listening to our chefs, our, our chefs, are PR machines. So uh, as I went and researched the individual chefs, there was some amazing podcasts talking about chocolate, the history of chocolate, what makes Godiva chocolate special. Our, our lead chef today, Chef Thierry, actually started as a chemist. And uh, so chocolate is a breakdown of chemistry to, to him. And, and he speaks at, at depth on that as, as well. So I tried to find out as much as I could about the business, the product. And then again, coming in, spending as much time as I could in Belgium, in Reading, Pennsylvania, at our Chocolate Centers of Excellence. And just listening and learning from those individuals, spending time with our R and D heads, our commercialization folks, and understanding really what makes this chocolate business tick, and then ultimately knowing that you know I was going to empower them to to do their job. Look, I, I wasn't going to reinvent chocolate here at Godiva. Um, we've been doing this for at that time you know ninety two years. Um, I was going to just try to fuel and support them on their journey forward.
0: I grew up near Reading, Pennsylvania. So if you want me sometime when I go home to run by the factory and, and do some sampling or quality testing, I'd be happy to do it, John.
1: We, you, you have a standing invite for me to, to come by, and uh, we could do an amazing tasting with you. I, I think you would love it. I'm actually, uh, I'm headed there tomorrow morning. Um, I generally go there every two weeks. Tomorrow morning, we're we're actually doing a shark tank at the, the facility where any of the employees could come forward together and present ideas for us. And so the president of North America, um, myself, our head of HR in North America, our head of supply chain are all going to go sit and listen to the people in the factory pitch ideas to us on new product development cost savings initiatives, hr initiatives and uh there'll be cash awarded to the winners. So I can't wait to hear what uh those folks have to say cuz I also say gosh, the those folks in the plant are the the heart of the brand. They're amazing individuals. Um, they they work hard. They work, you know, up in the holiday time period 7 days a week. Um, if you see the Lucille Ball show, which is often quoted that little film clip, that's not what it is. It's a lot harder work than that. Um, but our chocolatiers in the factory are really the, the ethos and the heart of the company. Um, and, it, and it stems from the work, the, the passion, and the quality that they put into every single chocolate somebody tastes. So uh, they provide me oxygen. Being in Reading, Pennsylvania is, is always something exciting. Everybody's been there through COVID. You know, There was no COVID slowdown or shutdown there. They just were there working. Um, so it's an amazing bunch of talented individuals. And I'm just lucky I get to go listen to them tomorrow.
0: Is it the first time you're doing the Shark Tank at the plant?
1: It's the first time we're doing the Shark Tank at the plant. So uh, we actually have a, a new leader for the, the plant. Um, and it was her idea to come and, and inspire and, and really engage in dialogue with some of the, the factory workers there. And they're super excited about it. I'm a little scared, a
0: little nervous, um, but I'm ready. I bet there's going to be so many ideas and such energy. So good for you. Good for awesome. you. We have to, we have to check, check in after that's over. I'm eager to hear what, what the themes were.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm definitely as well. Um, but I, but I would say, you know, I had the opportunity to, uh, to go down and, and work pre, uh, pre the holidays on the line and um, went down and spent two days boxing chocolates. And again, I'm, I was guilty of the Lucille Ball moment and uh, it, was, it was hard work, um, sometimes really repetitive work. Um, but I got to meet a number of individuals who've been working in the facility for 40 years um, and they were more passionate about this chocolate than, than anybody I've met in my life.
0: Now, in the two and a half years you've been in this job, you've seen some remarkable changes. We're talking about agility and nimbleness right now. Of course, the pandemic hit and you closed a bunch of cafes and stores in North America. You're exploding your e-commerce business from everything I've seen. You have strong growth in the big mass channels. You've had a CEO change and you work worked for two really talented women. Uh, and your team that you talked about, the chocolatiers, everyone, they're going right to the consumer with amazing content. I've seen some of it, uh, about chocolate, about Godiva. So that's a lot. So I'd like you to speak a bit about how you've evolved as a leader over that two and a half years with all of, of that change that you have been leading and managing through.
1: I would say, um... This has not been a role for the faint of, of heart, for, for sure. Um, you know, I, I did come in to work for a, for a leader who was an ex PepsiCo uh, individual who, who brought me in here, and you know, she's no longer her, Annie Young Scrivener. Um, we, we literally, on the, the first two days, talked when I joined about a, a new strategy at the time, you know, two and a half years ago, that we were going to take CPG back. So the way it worked before I got here was the the consumer product, good, the food drug mass part of our business was handled by a separate entity called Platys. And we had two brands, if you will, almost two brand campaigns, one for food drug mass and one for boutiques. Within two days here, I was told we're going to take CPG back. And that was a fundamental shift for the organization based out of New York, because as you would know, it's very different when it's your own store versus when it's somebody else's store and, and your timelines and your cell, and your, your thinking. Um, that was a dramatic shift. As you said, we've had leadership changes. In the end, for me, I, I think I've really tried to slow down, um, try to rise above it and sort of pretend like I'm looking down at it. Um, and sort of slow the story down because this story moves really, really fast. Um, and if I try to keep up pace with it, um, it becomes a challenge. So as much as I can possibly slow down, not take any moment too seriously, be a little bit more zen in my approach, the, the better. I'm a guy who, you know, grew up drinking, you know, 10, 12 Mountain Dews a day and uh, was a pretty wired, fast walking around guy. Um, I I think in this time, uh, over the past couple of years, I've sort of slowed down and been able to look at a bigger picture, a little bit longer term, a little bit wider out, and really relied much more on the the leaders of my team who were in place to run their business and give them the challenges to go solve, which they're immensely capable of, of doing. So acting more like a CEO, I'd say.
0: What's been your most difficult leadership challenge over the last two and a half years?
1: I think the the, the ch- most challenging part of leadership has been for for people at Godiva to really understand the, the future of the business and where we are going. You know, For us as a business that grew up in the retail boutique in North America, as, as we shut those, that became a challenge. And, and getting people on board with this notion that accessibility, that CPG is not a bad word. It's something that can be really great for this brand. I think people are starting to come on to that notion as they see our growth. Right now, we're leading the premium chocolate category in growth, so it's paying off for us. But you know, for people who had been at Godiva for a long time, this notion of being a supermarket brand or a club channel brand was something that was was tough to embrace. The notion that we could both stay premium, but offer that accessibility every day was, again, something that we had to learn together. We had to talk together about the best way to do it. Um, And, you know, that's something you can't just say overnight is going to happen, embrace it. It's a journey that we've all been on together.
0: You know, so many brands who try to keep the exclusivity and yet become more accessible stumble. I mean, Ray ba- Ray-Ban did and they brought it back. Uh, Pierre Cardin did, Oleg Cassini. You seem to be doing it pretty well. So John, I'd like you to go a little bit deeper into that. You know, what are the principles that you followed to manage that tension between exclusivity and luxury and accessibility?
1: So we're, we're a brand that this year has been around for 95 years. We're a brand that actually started out as a wholesale brand. So we didn't start out in a boutique. We started out delivering our chocolate to chocolate stores, to department stores, to supermarkets. So we, we started out that way. Over time, we evolved into our own stores. We evolved into global travel retail. We evolved into department specialty stores. So for us, You know, it's not necessarily such a dramatic change. Globally, we still have hundreds of brick and mortar locations. That is still part of our DNA. During the pandemic, we we actually opened up Godiva Delight, which is a soft serve yogurt concept in Shanghai. So it's not that we won't have our own stores going forward. We still have Godiva cafes in the Middle East and in Europe. And our teams globally really work on the notion of it's one brand, it's one set of products, and we're making access to that kind of wherever and whenever a consumer wants it. That's our job. Every product we put out there starts from the same Godiva chocolate couverture. That's the, the most important thing. So it, it comes from the same place. Every product we have comes with a touch from one of our chefs. So our chefs are the gatekeeper, they're not going to put anything out there that doesn't have a stamp of Godiva craftsmanship. What they would say has got to be godiva worthy. So that doesn't change for the Godiva brand or business today. I think for us, you know the important thing is having people believe they can approach this brand. you know i I'm fond of saying you know that the fact that this notion of scarcity makes premiumness work. I don't believe in that, right. I think for us, accessibility can be premium. Approachability can still be premium. The premium chocolate category, quite honestly, is a category that's a little bit old. Um, and, and we want to lead the youth movement in the premium chocolate category. Um, we, we need to do that. So our, our competitors aren't doing it, quite frankly. Um, we probably haven't traditionally done as great of a job as we should. Um, we we want to go there.
0: Okay, John, I want to move to the last section of this great discussion. And we call this the Creator Brief. And this is designed to get insights about you and uh, and your approach to life and business and brands. And the first question is what is your most loved Godiva treat?
1: So that's tough because I go through a lot and I I kind of taste something new every day. But um, I'd say today is our sea salt dark mini bars. And we, we launched actually last March during the middle of the pandemic, uh, signature mini bars. So our signature Cuvature in dark and in milk, and in this case with sea salt, um, they happen to have eight little uh, pieces to them, eight signature mini bars within it. So very much portion controlled. I try to eat one or two a day. I usually fail, um, but that signature mini bar tablet would, would start my list.
0: Your favorite go-to beer,
1: Miller Lite. It's never changed. You, you know, it's, it's funny that I you know I went I spent three years in London. Craft beer didn't do anything for me. The the London warm beer didn't do anything for me. The whole generation of craft didn't do anything for me. I'll fall back on Miller Lite every day.
0: Will we ever see a beer made with Godiva chocolate?
1: You absolutely will. So I I know a I know a guy who works at Boston Beer quite well, and maybe I can convince him to do it.
0: Best thing about working for a gigantic Turkish CPG conglomerate, which I know well, by the way, there's lots of XP&G people. It's a great company. Very, very strong ethics and very strong, as you know, in food and in in customer centricity.
1: So when I joined Godiva, I interviewed with Murat Bey, Murat Olker, who is the son of of Sabri Olker who started this business in 1944 um the the Yildas or the Olker business really came from humble beginnings it really did and it and it started with this this notion and this purpose of making people's lives a little bit better that every kid deserved to have a good life um we have this company, Yields brand, purpose of make happy, be happy, um, which emanates from our, our products. And, and Murat Bay brings that to life to us today. When I interviewed with Murat Bay, I asked him, I said, what, what do you want your legacy to be? And he said, I want to be known as a baker. And I said, you want to be known as a baker? I found that quite funny from a chairman of a, of a massive company. And uh, two and a half years later, I don't find it so funny. Every time I'm with Marape, he comes with a shopping bag uh, just last week with different products that he wants me to taste, craft, and see what we can make for Godiva. So uh, it's amazing to have a company that large where the chairman cares that much about a brand and looks at it every day and is willing to give us advice to take or uh, discard. And, uh, but really, he breathes oxygen into the organization as well.
0: Favorite campaign that you have been associated with?
1: I'd be remiss if I didn't say the campaign right now for Godiva, and I think of its critical importantness. Um, the campaign right now, that that's the wonder of Godiva, is really about sort of turning a script for us and making sure people know that this brand is approachable. That certainly we're not giving up any of the, des- of the desirability of our product, and that very, very importantly, it's accessible. People don't believe that Godiva is available in supermarkets. They're always surprised when they see it. So, the message of the campaign is we've got desirable products that are approachable for you and accessible where you want them.
0: Any lessons for other leaders who are looking to change their business model as you were doing? You're, I mean, you're really massively involved in change management. Any advice for leaders to, to follow the path that, that you're following?
1: I would say, you know we, we've had a lot of discussions in the two and a half years that, that I've been at Godiva, and um, there were some, some ideas that hung out there that seemed like very, very difficult decision, emotional decisions to, to make. Um, and, and we sometimes maybe we didn't go fast enough because we were hanging on to an emotion. Um, we were hanging on to a, a feeling about the past and the, and the legacy of what was. And when we finally made some really tough decisions, it turned out to be right. That the math was correct. The ultimate, you know, the ultimate legacy for our brand will, will show a, a positive story, and we're seeing it in the marketplace. So, uh, you know, if, if you're holding on to something for the sake of emotion, let it go.
0: Who's the most inspiring person in your life, John?
1: My dad. Um, I don't know why that would make me cry. I'm such a uh weird guy. Um, look, my my dad raised uh six, you know, siblings of six children, um, all have done pretty decent in their life. Um, he's a guy who's never raised his voice or raised his hand to any of us. Um he he's a gentleman who worked his whole life. He's a he's a water resource management diehard. That's his that's his thing. He was a Corps of engineers guy in the, in the military. He had passion for rivers. He lived his whole life. If there's a flood around the United States, you'll still uh, hear from uh, Jerry Galloway talking about flooding on the Mississippi. Um, it's, he, he's got a passion for his job. He's got a passion for his family. And uh, he's a great role model for me to try to live up to.
0: What's your birth order, John? Where are you in the six? I am the second youngest. I'm one of six as well. I read I'm not, that. <laughs> I'm number three, the middle child. So, hey, John, this has been so good. Anything for me? I'll give you the last word. Anything you want me to comment upon?
1: I do. Um, you know, you 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 talk a lot about brand purpose. Um, and in the world today, I, I think the thing that I struggle with a little bit in, in trying to get my hands around is, where brands should or shouldn't inject themselves in conversations. Um, we went through a lot, you know, last year, this exact time about brands putting themselves into conversations. I'm one who believes, you know, every brand doesn't have to be a part of every conversation. Um, but I'd love to understand your perspective on that and any advice you, you have for, uh, for me and for Godiva.
0: I think your people usually have good instincts in this. And, and certainly your history gives you guidance in this as well. So I, I agree with you. We are, we are not in the, we're not pundits, right, as brands. We're here to, to help life in some way based on our history and our products and our culture, help, help make life better in some way for our customers and society at large. So I think it's about um, what, the brand, what the brand's employees care about. They care more about your brand than anyone. They care more about each other than anyone. Their instincts are usually right. When they feel like we're being too quiet about something or too vocal about something, they should be feeling like they can say that. So the companies that I've advised going through the last year who have gone to their people and asked their advice about emerging issues, about, about areas that we may want to participate in, they've genuinely been guided well by the engagement with their employees. And you know that. Uh, and then the second one is, you know, what are your customers' value? What's your role in customers' lives? What would your founders have taken a stance on? And I think having good, active, open, honest discussions about those things, you will find your way.
1: That's great advice. That's great advice. And I I would be remiss if I didn't say, I mean, it's It's an amazing honor to get to to talk to you, and as a guy who's been in the marketing field for a long time i I can't tell you how many times when I've been on you know interviewing people for a job, and i I always compare wherever I've been at at hard rock or or Pepsi or here today, the bar is always procter and gamble, and uh you know I'm like I, the comparison of what we are to a procter and gamble, and it's you know certainly your your legacy is strong. Um, I'm, I'm super you know excited to have had the opportunity to spend some time with you today. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you, John. That's meaningful. I appreciate that. Thank you. That was my conversation with John Galloway. The three takeaways from this one to apply in your business and life. The first one's a fundamental one. Have passion for your work. Have passion for the brands you work on. Have passion for the people you work with. John believed very strongly in every business and brand he's worked on in his career and his results show that passion. Second takeaway, don't accept that you have to be not accessible if you're luxury. He breaks the paradigm. He believes that you can still have a premium luxury brand and still be accessible and he shared the principles to achieve that. Third takeaway, involve your people as much as you can in new ideas, in innovation, in how you grow the brand. John was leaving this podcast to go to a shark tank at their plant, their factory in Reading, Pennsylvania, where the people who work on the lines, the production lines, the process lines are going to share their ideas for Godiva and how to grow the brand further. Involve your people. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.